0: free. And Lord, give to us a passion for your Word, that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. the last few months on sunday mornings we have immersed ourselves in an expositional study of the new testament book of james in fact we have 15 studies under our belt as we're nearing now the end of chapter 3 and as we've seen the book of james is one of those tough <laughs> sometimes uncomfortable books like one of the men in the church told me after we were a few weeks in, he said, boy, James comes out swinging and he doesn't stop. And I, that's pretty accurate. So it's tough. It's an uncomfortable book sometimes, but it's also very pastoral. And this entire letter is evidence of James' loving pastoral concern for his fellow believers, many of whom had said under his ministry. I mean, he's concerned uh, and he's determined to do all that he possibly can for their spiritual well-being and as we've seen that this is an exhortation this letter is an exhortation to christian living and the goal of james is to promote in his readers a life that is consistent with faith in christ and he urges christians to put their faith into practice by actually living out their professed devotion to jesus And James is very simple and concise. what he says really is is easy to understand, but that doesn't mean that this is an easy letter to read. Because it is uncomfortable. And we may be uncomfortable because it's it's so straightforward and plain spoken and, and convicting. In fact, James is so plain spoken that he steps all over our toes, doesn't he? But you see, we need that. We need God by His Spirit, through His Word, to step all over our toes. We need God to get into our comfort zone, to make us uncomfortable with our sins. To convict us of it. And to spur us on to godly living. And that's precisely what this little book does. But in reality, this is what every book of the Bible does in one way or another. As we sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our hearts, our lives. The the Spirit enlightens our minds as to what Scripture means. And in this wonderful process, God reminds us of the specific passages of Scripture that we have violated. So that we know that we have sinned. But quite honestly, most of us know when we have sinned. We know when we're harboring sin in our lives. But the word of God is faithful through the, or God is faithful through his spirit, by the preaching of his word, to, to point these passages out and to let us know you violated this. He, he brings it to our mind. Because the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, the Word of God pierces our hearts. It was meant to. It cuts deeply. I mean, it exposes, the Holy Spirit exposes our sin. He points it out. He's not going to let us sweep it under the rug and, and just continue in it. And we all have sin in our lives. I mean, one of the gracious works of the Spirit in our lives is that He convicts us of sin. He works in your life and mine in such a way that we see and and feel the guilt that we should have felt all along. And that's painful, isn't it? And we grieve. And we have a godly sorrow for whatever sin we've been engaged in. At least we should. And this kind of sorrow is good. Because if we respond appropriately, it it leads us to confession of our sin and then it puts us back in a right relationship with God and with others. And so this spirit given conviction of sin is good. It is a great blessing. Because it actually means that God is working, that God is pruning and and purging, He's molding and shaping, He's removing contaminants as He's growing us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It means that He's treating us as sons and daughters so that we may participate in His holiness and enjoy enjoy the, the peaceable fruits of righteousness. I mean, the Lord Jesus taught us, uh, taught us correctly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about uh, material poverty, but spiritual poverty. Recognizing your spiritual bank, that you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's speaking of mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they will be filled. And we are blessed. We are blessed beyond measure when we're convicted by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And every time we hear the Word of God preached, we should anticipate and seek the Spirit's conviction in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit identifies a particular sin or sins, either in thought, motives, word, or deed, we're to take note of that and consider that and then embrace that correction as a grace from God because that is exactly what it is. As Paul Tripp said, grace exposes the deep regions of your heart while blessing you with the grace of confession and forgiveness. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts of sin we're to embrace the conviction as grace from God and then confess that sin to the Lord and repent of it or or turn from it. So don't resist the Spirit's work and, and promptings from God but embrace them. Embrace them. And when the truth of God's Word is heard in the preaching and by God's grace we're convicted by what we hear, we should give God glory and praise for speaking to us, for working in our lives to make us more like Christ. Because that's exactly what is happening in conviction. God is speaking to us. And He's working on us. And yes, it can be grievous. It hurts. But as someone once said, it hurts so good. And we're to turn these these moments of conviction into opportunities for growing in our faith and holiness by God's grace and in reliance upon His Spirit. And then we're to keep listening and to keep listening. Because the Lord will continue to speak through His Word and the Spirit will continue to illumine and enlighten and convict by the Word because all of the Spirit's sanctifying work is not exhausted in one sermon or one instance of conviction. No, He has more for us. This is a lifelong process. It's part of the process of sanctification. We're continually convicted of sin by the Word of God because we continually sin. And so God has much more for us, much, much more. And so like the young Samuel, our prayer at every sermon and every time we open God's infallible word should be, Speak, O Lord, for your servant listens. Or as David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. I mean, what a great blessing. I mean, what a glorious thing it is that the sovereign God of all creations speaks to us, his creatures. Loved ones, we're to embrace the gracious, Spirit-given conviction as a good gift from God because that's exactly what it is. But there are people in the church today who don't like being convicted of sin because they don't want to feel any kind of pain. And they especially don't want to feel the pain and grief of conviction. They don't want to feel bad about anything. Why? Well, Number of reasons. Number one, there are those in the church who have mistakenly come to believe that going to church is like uh, going on a visit to Disneyland. You know, the, the happiest place in the world. You know, they come to earth wanting to be made to feel happy. They expect nothing but positive reinforcement. They expect nothing but good thoughts and and good feelings and pleasant little homilies about how to have a a better life or be a better you. You know, never anything that would cause one to feel bad or sorrowful or to grieve over sin. And certainly the Word of God does encourage us and equip us, and and we have, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength, but that's not happiness. And God is more concerned with our holiness than He is our happiness anyway. And so these people will avoid the faithful preaching of God's Word because they have no desire to hear about sin. And that's because they have no real appetite for God's Word. And that is because ultimately they have no real love for the truth. Secondly, there are others in the church whose desire for sins, faults, pleasures motivate them to count genuine conviction as condemnation. In other words, because they want to enjoy their sin for a season or they find themselves in love with the world's pleasures, they run from conviction because they don't want to give up their sin and they don't want to hear about it. And so they're tempted more and more to avoid the the Spirit-empowered preaching of the Word because it makes them uncomfortable, and rightly so. Because it's challenging them. It's stirring conflict in them as their spirits yearn for the things of God and their flesh wars against the Spirit. And so they're torn and they feel the conflict, sometimes with a lot of distress. And the danger, the danger, is that they would rather avoid the convicting influence of God's Spirit through His Word so that they can live at peace with the world and their sin. And we have to be very careful of this. Because that is a very, very dangerous state to be in. Because it may simply be a form of hardening our heart. And we need to remember the multiple warnings of the writer of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Avoiding conviction may prevent us from receiving God's gracious correction through the preaching of the Word of God. You know, one of the worst forms of discipline that God can give us is to let us have what we want. The more tempted we are toward indulging and enjoying our sin, the more quickly we better run to safety and embrace conviction as a good gift from God. And thirdly, others in the church don't like the feeling of conviction because they fail to distinguish those feelings from condemnation. While conviction exposes our sin and guilt to us, it does so in a way that leads us back to Christ for cleansing and for forgiveness. Whereas condemnation is a condemning judgment, a verdict rendered against the offender and, and the penalty that the verdict demands. And of course, the penalty or condemnation for sin is what? What is it? Death. Death. As one man said, for the Christian to feel condemned before God, there must be the woeful forgetting that Christ satisfies God's justice on our behalf. One forgets that Christ bore the wrath. He suffered our condemnation, and he freed us from the separating negative judgment of God. Our sin and guilt were nailed to the cross. And if we forget this, and if we lose sight of the cross, conviction then may be interpreted as condemnation, wrongly so. And if that happens, the gracious work of conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word may be resisted and even rejected because they're unable to distinguish the difference because of a lack of spiritual maturity between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and condemnation. And the more tender our conscience the more careful we must be to distinguish conviction from condemnation. And I believe that, that oftentimes what a believer is experiencing when they say they are, they are feeling condemned is instead what they're feeling is the conviction of sin brought about by the Holy Spirit. But that sense of conviction and, and but, but that sense of conviction and godly sorrow when you've sinned, that, that's God working in your heart. And again, that's a good thing. However, that sense of condemnation, that is not God working in your heart. That is not from God at all. Rather, that is from Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He tries to accuse and condemn us for our sin. And Satan likes to accuse you and I before God, and he also likes to accuse your conscience. He likes to remind you of your sin. He likes to remind you that, you know, you've committed yourself to God and yet you have just failed him miserably. Because Satan wants us to wallow in our sin as a result of his condemnation. He wants us to just wallow in our sin and stay there. As one man said, Satan wants you to wallow in sorrow because he knows that if he can defeat you emotionally, your light basically goes out in terms of shining as a witness for Christ. And Satan loves to keep Christians down. And so that sense of condemnation, that is not God working in your heart. But that sense of conviction, that is God. And it's good. It's the work of the Spirit in your life, but condemnation, which is a sense of uh, which is a sense of darkness, a sense of unbearable shame, that's negative. It's always from Satan. Feelings of condemnation are never right for the believer. Why? Because of Christ's work—work work we could not do in the weakness of our flesh. So because of his work, we who are in Christ, we're free from condemnation. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, the same way we know that Jesus loves us. The Bible tells us so. And with that in mind, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to ask you to stand. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, but we're going to spend all of our time this morning in verse 1. Romans chapter 8, beginning now in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. As we look here at verse 1 in Romans chapter 8, to help us understand the context, we need to remember that in the closing verses of chapter 7, I mean, Paul has just given a clear picture of what the Christian is like. And Paul tells us the Christian is not ruled by sin, but neither is he free from sin. he's still a sinner who struggles with sin. And the Christian is simultaneously a saint and a sinner. The Christian is indwelt by the Spirit, but he is always battling sin, harassed by the flesh. And he's not the same as an unbeliever. I mean, unbelievers are at peace with sin. They live in sin. The believer is at war with sin. And this will be the believer's lot until he dies or until Jesus comes. I mean, this is the reality of the Christian life and the spiritual battle, battle in which we are engaged. And Romans chapter 7 ends with these words from the last sentence of verse 25. So then, Paul says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now that's kind of scary. In spite of the fact a real change has taken place in our lives, you know, we've been born again to a living hope. In the book of Romans, Paul is teaching the truth of justification by faith alone. So, um, you know, we know that a great change has taken place in our lives. We've been born again to a living hope. And the Holy Spirit is within us, changing us, but we still sin. And what are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of sin? Well, according to the law of God, if we sin, we what? We die. The soul that sins shall surely die. Wages of sin is death. If we sin, we die. We must face the wrath of God. And so what Paul does here in verse 1 of chapter 8 is bring us back to the basics of our justification and what it affects. And what he tells us there in verse 1, look back at the verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So one commentator said this is uh, one of the most triumphant and glorious verses in all of sacred scripture." And this is a statement of the believer's perfect and eternal security in Christ. And it's the theme of chapter 8, and everything that that follows flows from verse 1. In fact, you could say the rest of chapter 8 is basically an exposition of this one idea. But verse 1 is not only the theme of Romans 8, it's the theme of the entire Word of God. It's the gospel in a nutshell. This sentence is a summary of justification by faith. It's it's the very heart and soul of the gospel, which is what Paul has been explaining all along in the book of Romans. Look back at the verse. Paul says, "There, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he begins with, There is therefore. And by simple definition, therefore introduces a result. Or a consequence? Well, a result or consequence of what? Well, Paul is referring to a result of our being justified by faith alone, made possible solely on the basis of and by the power of God's grace. And so as a result of that glorious truth, there is therefore now no condemnation. And this is absolutely essential to any understanding of the gospel. Paul says there is now no condemnation. I don't think we realize what, 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 the, what the, the greatness of that statement. Let's start with the word condemnation. The Greek word translated condemnation appears only in the book of Romans, here and in chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. And although it relates to the sentencing for a crime, its primary focus is not so much on the verdict as on the penalty. The penalty that the verdict demands, and as Paul has already declared, the penalty or condemnation for sin is death. The Bible says that all men and all women throughout all of time and human history are by nature children of wrath. In other words, they are objects of divine wrath. All people are, because all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. All men are sinful, and as such are guilty and condemned before a holy God, facing eternal judgment and endless torment in hell. You say, well, I thought Jesus didn't come to condemn. Well, Jesus didn't. But if you read uh, verse 18 in, in John 3, I mean 17, God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. But then the next verse Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. They stand condemned before a holy God. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So all men apart from Christ stand condemned before a holy God, facing his eternal judgment and wrath. That is the state of man apart from Christ. That is the state of all men and women in the world apart from Christ. They are condemned before a holy God because they have not believed. But of course, most people think that they're basically fine. You know, basically good. Fine. Not real righteous, but, you know, pretty good. But we're not. Not according to the Bible not according to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And that's just in the book of Romans. Before our salvation, we were under sin's power. Literally, it means we were overpowered by sin. It was just too much for us. We couldn't restrain it. We didn't have the ability. And if that's not bad enough, not only were we overpowered by sin and powerless to do anything about it, to add insult to injury, we were controlled by Satan. In fact, in John eight forty four, 44, Jesus declared that Satan is the spiritual father of every unbeliever. In Ephesians 2, 2, it says, We were following the prince of the power of the air. And not only were we overpowered by sin and controlled by Satan, we were also subject to misery. I mean, life is filled with emptiness, bitterness, sorrow, pain. I mean, to borrow Job's words, we are born to trouble. I mean, there is no peace, there is no real joy in the the world. We just go from one tragedy to another, from one disaster to another, from one unfulfillment to another, from one empty experience to another, from one pain to another, one sorrow to another. That's how life in this fallen world is. We were overpowered by sin, controlled by Satan, subject to all the miseries of life in a fallen world and headed directly for the eternal wrath of God. And as the writer of Hebrews said, there remains nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So as an unbeliever, there was nothing to look, to, look, look for but wrath. And that wrath is forever. No such thing as purgatory. God's eternal wrath and judgment is forever. It is judgment without mercy, pain without relief, punishment without compassion. That's how it is with the unsaved. That's how it was with all of us. We stood condemned before a holy God with with absolutely no prospect of changing ourselves. But, in the darkness of, of that bleak picture, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. The word now is a time word. And it points to the change that has come about as the result of the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ made possible by His substitutionary atoning death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, at one time we stood condemned by God and were due to suffer the penalty of an eternal death for our sins. But that's been changed. Aren't you glad? That's been changed now because of God's mercy and grace to us. As a, as a result of the gospel then in our lives, there is now no condemnation. That's the point. It's not that Jesus will fix your marriage. Or Jesus will help you enjoy life more. Jesus will make you happy and, and deliver you from all of your problems. And Jesus will give you more toys and more pleasure. No, I said, Jesus will save you from eternal hell and the wrath of Almighty God. I mean, look at that word, no. No condemnation. What a statement. I mean, no is is a little word. Two letters. But are we aware of its full meaning? This word, no, carries the, the idea of complete cessation. In other words, it is entire, it is complete, it is absolute. There is not one bit of condemnation, not even the slightest tinge of condemnation. Paul is saying that a Christian is a person who has been taken entirely outside the realm of any possible or conceivable divine condemnation. He's been taken right out of it. He has nothing more to do with it. There is now no condemnation to the Christian. Do you realize this morning how glorious that truth is? I mean, if we really understood how glorious that truth is, we would be beaten down that door to get here every Sunday, coming in with hearts full of nothing but praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God for what He's done for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for the Christian. But not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he never can be. It is impossible. And that's an incredible truth. Think of it. For Christians, for you and I this morning, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no condemnation. Never. Ever. In this parable about the king who forgave one of his slaves an overwhelming dead in Matthew 18, Jesus pictured God's gracious and total forgiveness of the sins of those who come to him in humble contrition and faith. And that is the heart and soul of the gospel. But Jesus Christ completely and permanently paid the debt of sin and the penalty of the law, which is condemnation to death for every person who humbly asks for mercy and trusts in Him alone for salvation. And Jesus not only pays the believer's debt of sin, still more amazingly, He graciously imputes to each believer His very own perfect righteousness. Righteousness. For by one offering, He, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Even more than that, Jesus shares His heavenly inheritance with those who come to Him in faith. It is because of such immeasurable divine grace that Paul admonishes Christians in Colossians 1.12 to be continually giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And having been qualified by God the Father, we will never under any circumstance be subject to divine condemnation. Now, it's important to realize that our deliverance from condemnation is not in the least bit based on any form of perfection achieved by us as believers. We do not attain the total eradication of sin during this earthly life. Paul very clearly established that truth in Romans chapter 7. John said in John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Christian's conflict with sin does not end until we go to be with Jesus. Nevertheless, there is still no condemnation. And Paul is not saying that there is nothing in the Christian worthy of condemnation. Because there are plenty of things in my life and your life, even since we've been born again, that deserve condemnation. We still sin. And as we do, what we deserve for sin is the condemnation of God. And if God were to judge us right now uh, according only to our sin, I would be condemned and so would you. But the glorious news is that we have a Savior and the penalty for all, that sin, all the sinful failures in my life and yours have been paid in Christ and applied by grace. We've been justified by faith and the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And so when God looks at us, he sees you and I as covered or, as Isaiah said, robed with, with righteousness. We are clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. That's how God sees us this morning, although there is sin in our lives. He sees us as perfectly righteous in Christ, and that is why there is no condemnation. Never. Ever. So what an incredible blessing it is to be placed beyond the reach of condemnation. And the truth that there can never be the eternal death penalty for believers is the foundation of this 8th chapter of Romans. And Paul rhetorically, uh, near the end of the chapter, asks, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? And what's the answer? Well, no one, of course. And again, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if God the highest judge and the highest court in the universe justifies us, then who can declare us guilty? This is an amazing, amazing truth. And no sin will ever reverse this divine, legal declaration by the judge of all the earth. It is important for us to understand the fact that Though we are delivered from divine condemnation, that does not mean we are delivered from God's loving discipline. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And he goes on to talk about the fact that if you don't receive discipline, then you're illegitimate, and you're not a son or daughter at all. And So even though we're not under condemnation, that does not mean that we are not accountable to God. We are. And because God loves us, He will, by His Spirit, convict us of sin, And if we ignore his convicting work and we don't deal with that sin issue in our lives, if we don't confess our sin and turn from it as believers, God will, if he sees that it's necessary, lovingly discipline us as every loving father does his children. And it's not pleasant, it's grievous, but it's only for a time. But it's God working in us because he loves us to make us more and more like Christ. So even though we're not under condemnation, we are accountable to God, and he certainly will convict us of sin. And if that doesn't bring about confession and, and repentance, then, then God will take the next step, and he'll you know, little, give us a little discipline. It's like, son, come on in here. We need to sit down and talk for a minute. You know, and, and, and God will discipline us. But the point here in verse 1 is that the Christian is not in a state of condemnation. Not now or ever. He never can be. It is impossible. No sin a believer can commit past, present, or future can or will be held against him. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and his righteousness was imputed to us. And this divine condemnation from which believers are freed from is without exception or qualification for who? Look at verse 1. For those who are what? In who? Christ Jesus. So those who are freed from divine condemnation without exception or qualification are those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, every true believer. In chapter 7, Paul emphasized the reality that in this present life, no Christian, not even apostle, is exempt from struggles with sin. I mean, read Romans 7 when you get home. That is Paul's struggle with sin as a mature a believer, as an apostle of Christ. So not even an apostle, he tells us in in chapter 7, is exempt from the struggles of sin. And in the opening verses of chapter 8, on the other hand, Paul emphasizes the amazing reality that every believer, even the weakest and most unproductive, shares in complete and eternal freedom from sin's condemnation. And so he declares to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those, all of those, who are in Christ Jesus. And that's a great description uh, of who Christians are. A Christian is a person who is in Christ Jesus. I mean, Being a Christian is not simply being outwardly identified with Christ, but rather being a part of Christ. It's not simply being united with Him, which we are, but it's united in Him. In Romans chapter 6, we learn that at the moment of salvation, by the action of the Holy Spirit, we were united with Christ. We were baptized into Christ. We became one with Him, so that we are now in Christ. As an unbeliever... Uh, Scripture says we were in Adam, but now as believers we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That is a profound mystery which we are not going to fully understand until we meet him face to face. But we are in Christ. And that being the case, all those who are in Christ are freed from condemnation. You see, there are only two classes of human beings. Those who are in Christ Jesus and therefore not under condemnation. And secondly, those who are not in Christ Jesus and therefore are still under condemnation. The promise of no condemnation is for those in the first class only. Those who are in Christ Jesus. And so... The question before us then is, which class are you in? Are you among those who are in Christ Jesus and therefore not under condemnation? Or are you not in Christ Jesus? And therefore you are still under condemnation, facing the eternal wrath of Almighty God. That's the question, isn't it? That is the issue of life. I want to comment on verse 1. How many of you are reading the New King James Version? A few of you? Okay, for those of you who are reading the New King James Version, you'll notice the addition of the words in verse 1, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You'll notice those words at the end of verse 1 in the New King James. But that is an error. It's a scribal error, and we know that it is. That phrase is not found in the earliest manuscripts of Romans or in most modern translations. And that phrase seems to be saying that if we continue to lead a godly life in the Spirit, we will not be condemned, but that if we fail to live a godly life, we will be. So to keep that phrase in verse 1 suggests the exact opposite of what the text is actually saying. Well, how did such an error happen? Well, it's probable that a copyist inadvertently picked up the phrase from verse 4. Whenever you see an older manuscript without something and a later one with it, it's a pretty good indication that it got added in the process, and that is normally the case. But because the identical wording appears in verse 4, the correct meaning of the passage is not affected. Well, does this mean then that we cannot trust the Bible? Well, not at all. Because there are only a handful of problems like like this, and, and they are very well known to those who work with biblical texts. And they have been corrected. But in this case, the error existed for quite a long time, and it still continues to exist in the New King James translation. But these additional words do not belong in verse 1. And here's why. If they did, our escape from condemnation would last only as long as our next failure or sin. And then we would be back under condemnation again. But thank God salvation is not like that. Salvation is from God. It is by God. And what the text says is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And these are such important words. Because they remind us of our position now as Christians. There is no condemnation for the Christian now and never can be. But a couple of things need to be said here. Number one, there are many people who misunderstand this. And they seem to think that if the Christian confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness, he is forgiven, and then at that moment he is not under condemnation. But somehow, if he sins again, he's right back under condemnation. And then when he repents and confesses his sin again and asks for forgiveness, well, then he's he's cleansed once more, and so he's no longer under condemnation for now. And so to them, the Christian is constantly passing from one state to the other, back and forth, condemned, not condemned, condemned, not condemned. How do you ever know what state you're in? Because we sin often in word, thought, deed, and motive. You see, according to the Apostle Paul, that is a misunderstanding. That is a complete failure to understand the position of the Christian. The Christian is a man who can never be condemned. He can never come into a state of condemnation again. What does the verse say? There is therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul is not talking about the Christian's experience there. He's talking about the Christian's position, his standing, his status. The Christian is in a position in which, having been justified, he can never again come under condemnation. That's the meaning of this word no. It means never. So Paul is declaring here that nothing can ever bring a Christian into a position of divine condemnation again. And of course, someone is always bound to say, well, hey, that's a pretty dangerous thing to tell people because if you tell people that, it's just going to encourage them to go out and just sin." I mean, hey, if we tell Christians that their, their past sins, their present and their future sins have already been put away by God, are we more or less just telling them that they're to just free and go out and, you know, sin all they want? Well, that's the very charge they brought against the Apostle Paul, isn't it? And it's because Paul preached this very same thing that people said in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul has already given the answer to such a ridiculous thought and charge in chapters 6 and 7, proving that there is no danger or risk at all in this, in fact, just the opposite. And Paul went to great lengths to show that Christians are in Christ. We have died, been buried, and resurrected with Christ by the power of God in order that we might walk in newness of life. We have a new life in Christ. As Paul says in, in chapter 6, verse 11, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that we're without sin or that we as believers do not have an ongoing daily struggle with sin. But that from the moment we were born again, we were delivered from the dominion, from the controlling power of sin. And this means the genuine Christian will not go on living the same sinful life he did before he was saved. Because the old self, that person that he was before, that person died. And he is now under the power of grace. A Christian is in Christ, placed there by God through the Holy Spirit, and if you're in Him, you're in Him forever. You're in Him for all eternity. Because it is God who has put you in Christ. He put us in Christ at the moment of salvation. And no one, and nothing can take you out, neither hell nor Satan nor any other power in all of creation. If you are in Christ, you are in. It is absolute. There is no condemnation. There never will be. It's impossible. And there is absolutely nothing more foolish and unbiblical than the idea that you can be in Christ at one moment, and then when you sin, you are out of Christ the next moment, and then when you repent, you're in Christ all over again. How can that be reconciled with what Paul has taught in the book of Romans, let alone the entire New Testament? It can't. You say, well, wait a minute. What about all those warnings about falling away? Well, of course there are warnings about falling away. The Bible repeatedly warns about falling away. Because if you fall away, what does it prove? You were never in Christ. They went out from among us. Why? That it might be made clear that they were not of us. The truth about us as Christians is that God, by the Holy Spirit, has put us into Christ. He's implanted us in Him, as chapter 6 tells us. In chapter 7, Paul put our being in Christ in terms of the marriage bond and unity And then there's the illustration of the body that Paul used in in 1 Corinthians 12. We are the body of Christ. Jesus talked about our union with him in terms of the vine and the branches. We are in Christ. We are one with him. We are part of him. That's our relationship with Christ. And so we do not go in and out of that. We do not cease to be Christians when we sin. We don't come under condemnation when we sin. We're not thrown out of Christ when we sin. And secondly, though we are not in and out of Christ when we sin, when we sin, however, there is a break in the fellowship. It doesn't sever the relationship but there certainly is a break in the fellowship. Sin disrupts the fellowship and communion that we can have with Christ. And it can disrupt the fellowship and communion we have with other believers as well. But the good news is that when we confess our sin, ask forgiveness, we're cleansed, right? But when we do that, we're not asking to be brought out of condemnation and back into the family. We're simply asking for a renewal of fellowship. And so we should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put ourselves back under the law. And Paul says in in chapter 8, verse 2, that we have been freed in Christ from the law of sin and death. Freed from that. And he's already said in Romans, we are no longer under law, but under grace. So we should never feel that we are under condemnation. You see, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man breaking one of the laws of the state and a member of the family doing something that offends or hurts another member of the family. You know, in the first case, a man commits an offense against the state. In the second, a husband, for example, has done something that he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He's not breaking a law, a law of the state, but he certainly is wounding the heart of his life. And that is certainly going to affect their relationship. And that's the difference. When a Christian sins, it is no longer a legal matter of the law. Rather, it is a matter of personal relationship, a relationship of love. And in doing this, the man doesn't cease to be the husband of the woman, just as we don't cease to be in Christ. Does that make sense? And so the law doesn't enter into the matter at all. It's outside the realm of the law. In a sense, it's something much worse than a legal condemnation because it is sinning against and and hurting and offending someone you deeply love. And in fact, it it is offending and sinning against someone who loved you so much that he gave himself for you. And that should break our hearts. How can we trifle with sin the very thing that killed the one who loved us? So what Paul says in this verse is not in any way encouraging people to sin. At least not if they're truly a believer. And if someone's not a believer and they're just looking for a way to live a worldly life, sure. But they're not going. They wouldn't do that if they were truly a Christian, because being in Christ means you're a new creation, right? The old has passed away; the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. That means you have a new nature. That means you're going to have new desires for God that you didn't have before. It means you're going to have a love for God, a new desire, and a love for the things of God, thankfulness to God for his abundant mercy in Christ, a hunger for God's word, a love for God's people, a love for God's bride, the church, and a desire for holiness. It's not that you will never desire again to sin, but you will fight against it. And you will want to avoid it at all costs because you love God. You love Christ. But when we sin, and we will, we sin against love and not law. And when we do, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and and we feel ashamed. And we hate what we did. And we confess that. And we know that we're not going to be disowned and kicked out of the family and condemned before God. Because there is grace to be found at the throne of grace. There's saving grace, sustaining grace, and there's forgiving grace. I and mean, as John tells us, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, the Lord is faithful and just, what? to cleanse us of our sin and forgive us of all unrighteousness. And he will keep on cleansing. And he will keep on forgiving. You see, confession of sin characterizes genuine Christians. Confession of sin and repentance of sin, that that characterizes the the, the true believer because uh, we continue to sin. And where there is sin, God is faithful to use His Word, working with His Spirit to bring conviction. And and again, loved ones, this is a good thing. Oh, it's good. Because again, not to be convicted and then not to experience discipline beyond that, it just proves that you're illegitimate, that you're not one of His. Because God convicts and God disciplines those he loves those who belong to him. Unlike condemnation, you no know, biblical conviction leads to godly sorrow which leaves no regrets, whereas condemnation flees from God. Conviction causes us to run to God for restoration and, and peace. And you see, where there is true spirituality, where there is true spiritual maturity. I mean, there'll, there'll be an understanding of these things. And there will be a deep, burning sense of anxiety and conviction of sin and, and the pursuit of true holiness in a desire to obey the commands of God and to walk in them. Why? Because we love Him. That's true spirituality. I mean, that's the heart of the matter. And so, as you and I sit under the preaching of God's Word, and as the sermon progresses, and you're exposed to the the sword of the Word, just know and understand and uh, anticipate and look for the Spirit of God to bring you then under conviction of sin, but leading you to true repentance. It's a wonderful work that he does every time we sit under the preaching of God's Word. Certainly, we're encouraged, we're equipped, we're challenged, but we're convicted of sin. And the only way you wouldn't be convicted of sin is if you weren't listening, number one. Uh, or if you thought you didn't have any sin. And then you're delusional, right? Right? Because the Word of God convicts, and we all have sin to be convicted of. And when we practice a lifestyle of confession and repentance, guess what? We're going to find an increased desire to hear more of God's truth. And as we hear more of God's truth, guess what's going to happen? That's going to promote even more spiritual growth and maturity. And that's going to produce a greater uh, sensitivity to sin. A greater understanding of of how exceedingly sinful we are, even as believers. And it's going to anticipate and invite and embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And and that's going to lead again to confession and repentance. And that's going to increase to just a, a more desire to hear the truth of God's word and more spiritual growth to bring us to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so people who think they don't need to hear about sin or be convicted of sin because they're so mature, they're not mature at all. And they don't know the first thing about the gospel. And they don't know the first thing about the purpose of uh, the preaching of God's word. And they probably know very little about the gospel. A conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit is good. It is a great blessing. It's to be embraced. Because, again, it means that God is pruning and purging, He's molding. And shaping. I mean, he's treating us as sons and daughters. He's he's working in us because we belong to him and he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And he's continually working to make us more and more like Christ. And so he's going to remove the contaminants. You know, he's going to grow us, you know, to maturity that we might become more and more like Christ. And what is the purpose of all of this? So then that we can go out in the world and be light and salt and live the Christian life so that people will actually recognize a difference in our lives, in the way that we live, the way that we behave, the way that we act toward one another, in the way that we speak. There should be a noticeable difference You know, we're going to be the ones who aren't going to, to compromise in different areas of life. We're going to be the ones who are going to say no to Sunday activities because the worship of God is priority in our lives. You know, the the Olympics just finished. I actually didn't watch any of them. But I know they just finished. And... uh You know, I was actually given a book about Eric Little. I've read one about him and and this is another one. And of course you remember the story of Eric Little, a Brit, who was supposed to run for the gold medal in the nineteen was it thirty six? I can't remember now, thirty six Olympics. But he was meant he was going to have to run for the gold medal race on Sunday. And he said no. He would not run on Sunday because that was the Lord's day. And he was a believer, and he took that very seriously. And you know, we laud and praise Eric Little. Oh, what a glorious thing that is. And yet we... So many will continually miss service for things far less important than running for a gold medal. Because it's not important. It's not a priority. Because God is not the priority in their lives. The conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit is good. And may God continue to convict us and challenge us that we might become more and more like him, that we might be the light and the salt that he's called us to be for his sake and for his glory. Loved ones, if there was ever a time in the history of the church when the church should be the church and when Christians should live out the Christian life, it is right now. But as far as the church goes in this country, I and mean, there are so many that are capitulating. They're giving in to the culture. You can't tell uh, the Christian from the unbeliever. So God is going to shake not only our nation, but he's going to shake the church to its foundations. Because judgment begins in the house of God. Discipline begins with us as the church. And that's going to begin with the conviction of sin. And hopefully and prayerfully we will embrace that and respond to that and confess our sin. Which means just acknowledging that what, what God says about it is right and true and asking for forgiveness and then turning from that sin with the grace and strength that He supplies. And if not, we can expect the discipline of the Lord that can be severe. We know from First Corinthians 11 that God disciplined some of the Corinthian believers and that some of them were sick. God sent sickness their way. And some of them he took home. They died. He took them home early. So let us not take uh, the discipline of the Lord lightly. Because it can be severe. But you know what? It's all because God loves us. You see, he doesn't just love us unconditionally. I mean, he does that. But his love for us is far more than unconditional. Because God loves us so much, he is not going to leave us the way we are. He is going to change us by His Spirit, through His Word, you know, through trials, through suffering, you know, through all that we encounter and experience in life, God is going to use all those things for our good and His glory. And may we respond to Him appropriately. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. Do you have any remaining questions or comments? Please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837, Palosidro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.